question. Um, have you ever met someone, whether it be a stranger or just, just a friend, who literally shined for Christ? They just shine. They had this aura about them. I mean, I'm not talking just a nice, kind deed, but someone who is literally different. As I thought about this question, I, I recalled a couple of people in my day. Uh, one was, uh, he was a principal where I taught uh, math and science for one year in a Christian school back in New York State. He was the principal. He was also a pastor, but he rarely preached. And so he was given an opportunity to preach at the church that we attended, but it was a Sunday night service. He didn't quite make the Sunday morning lineup yet. But for, he knew like four or five months in advance that he was going to preach. And so he, he knew this sermon that he had heard on a tape and he memorized it during this five months. But not only did he memorize it, but he, uh, he practiced it every morning before school began. And he prayed over it and he bathed this sermon in prayer. And when he got up to preach that Sunday night, I remember sitting in the balcony just wanting to cheer him on. I remember him coming up front and he began the ser sermon and a light was shining on him. And I looked all around, where's the spotlight? And it w there was no spotlight. It was just him. He was different. He looked different. And as he preached th throughout the whole sermon, he had the Shekinah glory upon him because he had bathed the sermon in prayer for four or five months in advance. It was incredible to me. It was eye-opening to me that one could actually look that way. Another time, uh, and he gave credit to the guy who preached it originally too, by the way. Um, but yet God used him incredibly. Another time, I remember feeling really down and depressed. And I was a single youth pastor. And things were happening in my life that just threw me for a loop. And I remember feeling... Uh, unmotivated as I went to the Burger King on Iron Street there and I just sat, plopped myself down with my meal and just had no motivation at all, heavy-hearted. And then this man came and sat kind of next to me, not right next to me, but at a table over. And he began to engage me in conversation. I didn't want to converse with him. But as we talked, he asked me how I was doing and I opened up a little bit to him and he asked me again and then he listened. He listened to me as I poured my heart out. And not only did he not reply to me, he just began weeping. He had tears streaming down his face because he felt the empathy for me. And I got to tell you, he shined for Jesus. He was, a mess, he was Christ himself, almost. And it ministered to my soul like never before. Well, this morning we're starting a sermon series on how we could shine for Jesus as the Apostle Paul demonstrated throughout the book of Philippians. Um, and the sermon series is entitled Shine. Paul encouraged the disciples in Philippians 2 to continue to shine like stars in the universe to a crooked and depraved generation as you hold firmly to the word of life. He encouraged them to shine. What does it mean to shine for the Lord? And how can we do so? Again, we can learn from the Apostle Paul's example and his instructions uh, throughout the book of Philippians. The context of Philippians is this. Uh, Eleven years prior to Paul's writing of this, Paul began his missionary journey, and he was headed to Asia, um, which isn't China, but it, it's, it's this section here, the arrow on your right, 
It's, it's where we have these cities, Colossae and Ephesus and whatnot, and Pergamum. He was headed that way on his missionary journey, but God slammed the door in his face, and he couldn't enter there for some reason. And then one night we read about in Acts 16 that uh, Paul had a vision through the night, and it was a vision of a man who was crying out, come to Macedonia, we need your help, come to Macedonia. And so Paul obeyed immediately, and he uh, and his team, they went around Asia, went into Macedonia, which is Europe. And Paul landed in Philippi, which would have been the leading city of Macedonia. Consequently, the first Christian church was planted in Europe in the city of Philippi. Eleven years later, Paul finds himself under house arrest, but now he's in Rome. And, uh, and he's writing letters. He wrote to Ephesus and Colossae and the church in Philippi here um, during this, his two-year stint under house arrest. But his letter to Philippians was unlike any other letter that he wrote. It was a positive letter. It was encouraging. It was K-love. It was um, focusing on praise and thanksgiving to God, um, not only for God, but for the Philippian believers, that they stood with Paul, that, that they remained committed to him. And so he was so filled with joy and praise that he used the word joy and rejoice 16 different times throughout this one letter, despite the fact that he was under house arrest facing an uncertain future under Caesar Augustus. His life could soon end. And yet he continued to rejoice and give God praise. Why was Paul so joyful? One of many reasons was he wanted to encourage the church in Philippi. Paul was held in chains, and the Philippian believers would have been thinking, God, why, can't, why don't you hear our prayers? Why don't you deliver Paul from these chains? Day after day, he's, he's under arrest and he's, he may go to his death. Lord, deliver him. Deliver our, our friend, our pastor, our apostle. Deliver him. And yet, there was silence. He remained incarcerated. I don't know about you, but I've prayed prayers for people that God would heal them or that God would minister to them, and it's as if my prayers hit the ceiling. Or I pray for healing, and I get word, like I did this last week, that they passed away. Or they're, they, they've taken a turn for the worse, and I'm thinking, God, what difference do my prayers make? And so I need to be encouraged, too. I think we all do. But Paul says, in Romans 8.28, he says, you know, God works all things out for the good for those who love God and who are called according to his good purpose. And this is essentially what he repeated in Philippians. He said, God is in control here. He's in control of the number of my days, church. He said, there's no safer place to be than in the center of God's will. Even if you're in a danger zone, if you're in God's will, God measures your days. If I end up dying, then I'll be better off with Jesus anyway. In fact, I prefer that. But if I'm to remain here, it's for the sake of you, that I can encourage you and continue to build the church and give God glory. Furthermore, look at all the great things that are happening because I'm in chains here. Verse 12, now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, 
that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it's become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I'm in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. Paul's chains helped the Philippian believers be motivated and experience encouragement because Paul was reaching those in Caesar's household, those who worked for Caesar, other in a, in a way that could have not been possible had not been placed where he was. His attitude greatly encouraged the church to trust in God and to remain faithful to God. And this church would need this lesson because in four short years, there would be a worldwide persecution in the Roman Empire. And Jerusalem would be attacked and the temple would be annihilated and destroyed. And Christians would be dispersed. They would have needed to learn this lesson that God is sovereign. He's in control. And we do too. Because, you know, they would have thought, if, if, the, if the temple's destroyed, then where could we meet God? And God says, I want to teach them a much greater lesson here. There's a greater truth here being, being taking place before your eyes. The temple is no longer in Jerusalem. We need not have to travel to Jerusalem to have a holy encounter with God. The temple is right here. Our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit, and he remains with us wherever we go. It's a much greater truth than what they were trying to hold on to. God works all things out for the good. He's in control, even when it looks dismal. Paul also rejoiced despite the fact that so-called believers in the Philippian church tried to make matters worse for him while he was in prison, tried to uh, stir up slanderous accusations against him and about his ability to lead because they wanted the glory. They wanted the attention and the recognition and respect as leaders. And yet listen to what Paul's attitude was about this unfair attack and accusation. In verse 15, it is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others do so out of goodwill. The latter do so out of love, knowing that I'm put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely supporting, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I'm in chains. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached, and because of this, I rejoice. Paul is essentially saying, I don't care who's who gets the recognition for being a leader here. I could care less. If they want it, they can have it. I only want Christ to be glorified and the gospel to be preached to everyone. And even if they have bad motives and they're preaching this message, praise God, the message is being preached. The important thing, he goes on, is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. Yes, I will continue to rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or death. So 
apparently Paul's deliverance would end up in either life on earth continued or death. Both he considered would be deliverance. For me to live, for, for to me to live is Christ and to die is even better. It's gain because I'll be with Jesus. Rejoice. God is sovereign. He's still in control. Why else did Paul remain positive and hopeful and other-centered and thankful during a time like this? How could he shine so brightly when his future looked so dismal? More reasons can be found throughout the first 11 verses in Philippians. And may we apply some of these lessons to our lives as we read through them. And as I read through a few more highlights here, reasons that Paul had reason to rejoice. Um, as I read through this, I couldn't help but see the correlation of our mission statement in the first 11 verses here, which gave me great encouragement because I believe our church shines for the Lord in our community and world. And so it was greatly encouraging to see the correlation and see if you see the same as we read through the first 11 verses. First of all, our mission statement hanging in the back hallway looks like this up here. This is why we exist. We are a community growing in grace and truth of Jesus Christ as we worship, disciple, serve, and multiply. And then see if you can see some of the correlations in those words to the first 11 verses here, starting in verse 1 of Philippians. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all God's holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons, Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on into completion until the day of Christ Jesus. It is right for me to feel this way about all of you since I have you in my heart and whether I'm in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. And this is my prayer that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, to the, to the glory and praise of God. First, did you notice how Paul was so community-minded here? He was focused on community. First, verse 1, uh, I'm writing to all God's people, including the leaders. Verse 3, I thank my God every time I remember you in all my prayers for all of you. I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel with me from the first day until now. For 11 years now, Paul said, you're partnering with me. You know, they sent, they sent a messenger to Rome with an offering through one of their guys, Epaphroditus. He went to, to encourage Paul in, in, under house arrest and to encourage him. And so he said, man, you continue to partner with me. You're faithful to me. In verse 3, he says, you're a partner uh, with me since the birth of the church. And there was a mutual commitment and respect for one another. Not only was Paul thankful that he remained so committed to these believers and that God had filled him with such love for them still, 
even though he was away from them, but he was, he re, that they remained committed to him as well, financially, emotionally, prayerfully. And I got to say, I, I'm blown away along with the staff once again at your Christmas gift to us financially, uh, to the staff, um, because we feel not only the financial support, but that registers to emotional and prayerful and en encouragement for us. So thank you from the bottom of our hearts. It, we're humbled by your gift to us and by your regular giving on top of that, how God exceeded our expectations at the end of the year once again, um, that we can continue to uh, do ministry and mission through our church here. And so, man, just blown away by how faithful you are. And Paul was thankful that they continued to partner with him in verse 7. It's right for me to feel this way about all of you, since I have you, you in my heart, whether I'm in chains, but then all of you sharing God's grace with me as well. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. And our church aims for this kind of interdependence and community. Our mission statement begins, we are a community. The word community means in common, what we share in common, whether it be our goals, our interests, our pursuits, our fellowship, when we meet in one another's homes and small groups and eat together, the fun that we have together, playing cards at New Year's Eve or different games or, or just participating in worship in community, corporate worship. This is community. We are a community. Acts 2 and 4 at the beginning of the church was a focused on community. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to one another, caring for one another and fellowship, eating together, studying God's word together. They devoted, devoted, devoted. This American self-made independent mindset is not a biblical trait at all that we're so proud of. We hear, my religion is personal and private. Well, it may be personal, but nothing about our faith is private. Nothing. Just me and Jesus, that's all. No, it's not. Everything in God's word from beginning to end is corporate. You know, fiddler on the roof, family, corporate. And we're a church family. <clears throat> At Countryside, we ask people to commit to life groups. So we get into one another's homes, eat together. We, we ask you to commit to ministry team that the Lord is calling you to serve. We ask you to maybe <clears throat> commit to Bible studies, Sunday school classes, at corporate worship, because we worship together. And the next slide, or we worship, we serve, we disciple, we multiply. The strength of a church is not in the gifting of the pastor and how wonderfully inspirational he can be from the pulpit. That's not the strength of any church, let me tell you that. I know a lot of great preachers who have really dysfunctional churches, and vice versa. The strength of a church is in the commitment of the body of Christ to one another. People will be easily drawn to churches with outstanding speakers for a season, uh, but they won't have longevity. The true strength of a church is the commitment to Christ and to each other and commitment to the mission as we serve together. And I believe we have a healthy missional church because we're devoted to Jesus and we're devoted to one another in the mission of the church.
uh, through thick and thin, through our differences and our preferences and our faults and our foibles, we endure together. And why do we do that? Because that's what families do. Families do not disown family members when there's conflict in the family. They don't shove them aside and say, you know what, that's one too many times, I'm done with you. You no longer belong to the family when there's an offense. Rather, we learn to love each other unconditionally. We learn to say, I'm sorry. We learn to say, you know what, um, even though I was hurt by you or you were hurt by me, I'm going to pursue reconciliation and unity above all else. That is biblical. Now, having said that, I know some of you left churches before, and, and I did too. Sometimes God does ask us to leave a particular church family and go to another church family because God's church has a capital C. It's not Countryside Covenant Church alone. All Christian churches are God's church. And, and so I have brothers and sisters in the Reformed Church or the Baptist Church or the Methodist Church, and, and so God may call us sometime to leave and serve elsewhere. Doesn't mean we're not committed to you. And so I just want to acknowledge that. If you're here, God led you here for a reason, to serve together, to worship together, to love one another. And if God leads you elsewhere, it's because he needs you elsewhere. And he can use you, your family, in a, maybe a more profound way in another church. And so I'd rejoice with that as well. But we thank God that uh, Paul shined and he demonstrated this radiant love of Christ because he was committed to the body, to the community. And then thirdly, Paul shined because he was focused on growing. Paul didn't say, man, I've reached maturity. You know, we are a community growing in the grace and truth of Jesus Christ. Paul was committed to the growth of his own life, but also the growth and maturity of those in his churches. He knew that it was ultimately, though, that it was God who grew them. So he said, I thank you, God, uh, for growing us. And Paul was a lifelong learner. In chapter 3 of Philippians, he said, and this is the end of his ministry years, he said, not that I've already have obtained all this. Obtained what? To know Christ and the power of his resurrection. Not that I've already obtained all this, but I press on toward that goal, uh, to take hold of that which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Paul had this humble attitude, man, I got so much longer to go this side of heaven. He pressed on. And he said of this, he said this of the believers in Philippi, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you, he will be faithful to complete it in Christ Jesus. I thank you, God, that you're going to complete the work that you've begun in these people. It is up to you, God. 100% our spiritual maturity is from God. However, God is our head, and God says, I choose to rely on my body to carry out my will. The head's not decapitated from the body of Christ. We are the body. And God asks us to respond to care for one another in community. And this is the pattern of all of Paul's letters. Uh, first, he reminds the believers who they are in Christ and what God has done for them. 
He says in chapter 1, he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. He will do it. This is all he says. You are chosen. You are loved. You are, um, you are adopted. You are empowered, etc. This is what he says in the beginning of his letters. But then he gets to the point in the middle of his letters, or in this case in chapter 2, there's a therefore, because of this, therefore, this is your response. Therefore, in chapter 2, if you have any encouragement from being united in Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then please make my joy complete by being like-minded. You have a responsibility. Therefore, Lloyd Ogilvie said, we can't do it without God, but God won't do it without us. Our mission is that we worship together, that we pour into one another in discipleship, in service and multiplication as we, as we invest in leaders. Paul shined because he focused on growing, but what did he grow in? He grew in grace and truth, I believe. We are a community growing in the grace and truth of Jesus Christ. And this is how Paul demonstrates this grace and truth in verse 9. And this is my prayer, he says, that your love may abound more and more. That's grace. You know, I want God's love to be in you in knowledge and depth of insight. That's truth. I want your love to be balanced with truth so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness. What's more important Love or knowledge? Grace or truth? That's like asking, what's more important for life? To have a brain or to have a heart? They're, they're both important. Equally important. They need to be balanced. John 1.14, we're told that the Word became flesh and the Son came from the Father full of grace and truth. Jesus came full of grace and truth. What is grace without truth? Grace without truth leads to license. I can live any way I want to, and people love me just as I am, and I'll love you, and I don't care what you believe, and do whatever you want to do. That's relativism. That's grace without truth. But then we can have truth without grace. You know, we could be hard-headed and, and legalistic. It leads to legalism. The church is guilty of withholding grace and love to people who are messy in sin. And not only do we withhold love, but we stand in judgment over those people who are sinners out there and who are living contrary to God's will. And so we're known as a judgmental people. That's truth without grace. But grace and truth together lead to freedom and liberty. Jesus was full of grace and truth. Jesus extended grace to the humble on the left, all the sinners. He was known as being a friend of sinners and tax collectors. He was demon-possessed, and we got to put him to death. This, uh, he was filled with grace, but he was also filled with truth. He offered grace to the broken and the humble, but he offered truth to the arrogant and self-righteous. You know, the religious leaders of his day, the ones who were filled with truth, who had memorized uh, the Old Testament, basically, in the Pentateuch. They had memorized it. They had worshiped God on a daily basis. They're filled with truth, but they had no grace. And Jesus rebuked them. And you know what? Jesus uh, also repelled. Uh, they, Jesus was repelled by them as well. 
We need both grace and truth. And if we are unbalanced, then we'll be unbalanced as people. We can't lean one way or the other. Otherwise, um, we'll come off as license or legalism and not freedom. The sinners and the outcasts are, you know, man. And then finally, just last short point. Um, Paul shined not only because he's growing in grace and truth, because he's growing in grace and truth in Jesus Christ. Because he's Christ-focused. I'm not going to take time to read through the scripture, but in the first 11 verses alone, we read the word Christ or Jesus Christ or Christ seven different times in the first 11 verses. In the whole letter, Jesus is mentioned 70 times. Have you ever written a letter to anyone and mentioned someone's name 70 times before? Paul was so Jesus-centered and Christ-centered. I mean, he couldn't help but say his name. And so, just give you one example in verse 10. So that you may be able to discern what's best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Oh, Jesus, Jesus, that's you. I live for Christ. For me to live is Christ, to die is gain. And that's why I love this church. Because we're Bible-centered, but more so we are Christ-centered. And because we take the truth that we know and we love people who are broken. I love this church because of that. Are we perfect? Do we make mistakes? Yes. And I love that because you're so forgiving and gracious when, when we mess up. And you don't hold it over our heads and say, I'm getting out of here, man. I'm gonna... um, and so I just love that about this church. I wouldn't be here for 15 years had you not been this from day one. And I go on these conferences and I talk to other pastors who are great pastors. I mean, they can preach circles around me. They're gifted, but they're in such unhealthy churches. I just listen and hear them complain and hear them just unload on me because of people that are, um, you know, lions and sheepskin and just, and I said, man, I, I don't even say much about this church because it's embarrassing because I only have positive things to say about countryside. And I say that literally and truthfully. Um, when we go around circles, I come and say, you know, there are challenges, but, you know, God is good. That's basically what I say, because I don't want to make others feel so bad. But thank you for being gracious, and thank you for be, being people of the truth as well. I end where I began then. The pastor who bathed his sermon in prayer, why, did he, why was he radiant for the Lord. Why did he shine? It was because he was so Christ-centered. For the four months in advance, he invested in, in, you know, offering his sermon to him. You know, take my sermon, Lord, use it. He was radiant. And then the man who met me in Burger King, he obviously was radiant with Christ. I mean, he, he obviously was led by Christ to me, to minister to me in such a profound, life-changing way that, that day. Because he's so Christ-centered. That's the most important reason that we shine for Christ. Do you, do you shine like Paul? In these first 11s, he hints at four reasons why he shined. Because he said, God's sovereign, man. No matter what's going on, he's still in control. You know, whatever happens in my life, you know, I belong to Jesus. You know, I'm his property. And, and I offer myself to him. I, and so, secondly... He shined because he focused on community. We are so much better together than as lone rangers. We shine so much brighter together. Thirdly, we're focused, he was focused on growing in grace and truth. 
Not one or the other at the expense of the other, but he demonstrated grace and unconditional love toward those who offended him. Man, Jesus said, love your enemies, don't attack them. I mean, it drives me crazy how Christians treat one another. I I can't believe it. I mean, this is ABCs of Christianity. When you act that way, you're in direct disobedience. I don't care how right you are standing on the truth. You are in direct disobedience, and everybody knows it except apparently for you. And I've been there too. I've been there many times, and God had to rebuke me. We need grace and truth. And then finally, we need to focus on Jesus. And when we do that, he will certainly shine through us. That's his promise. Let's pray. And so, Jesus, I went long today in this first day of the year. So, uh, But, Lord Jesus, I thank you that you're still here, and your truth is abundantly clear in your word. Thank you, Lord, for speaking to us. Lord, your Holy Spirit has to penetrate into our hearts and change us, Lord. We may know the truth in our heads, but you need to, by your grace, transform us in our hearts so that we live like you, Jesus, and that we shine for you in the community, in the world, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.